I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi there, and welcome to the Explaining History podcast. And the thing that I'm going to talk about today, or the person I'm going to talk about today in particular, is Thomas Edward Lawrence, better known as Lawrence of Arabia. Perhaps the most mythologised British soldier of the 20th century. Immortalised, of course, in David Lean's 1962 film Lawrence of Arabia, starring Peter O'Toole and Omar Sharif. The film was obviously an enormous success and has become one of the kind of the landmarks of uh, epic British filmmaking uh, in the post-war era. But part of its success was the fact that nearly 50 years after the First World War, the mid-60s, particularly in Britain, saw a renewed interest in the war and in interpretations of the war. And it saw a renewed interest in examining different aspects of the war, and the war in the Middle East was largely overshadowed by the Western Front and the memory of the Western Front. The popularity of um, Lawrence as a figure, I think, stems from the fact that our overwhelming narrative about the Western Front is one of futility and tragedy and uh, wasted youth, Whereas the uh, war in the Middle East is a far more mobile affair and um, it's not one without its failures and disasters such as Kut Anamara and Gallipoli. But certainly by the time of the Arab revolt from 1916 onwards, um, the tide is turning against the Ottoman Empire and the exploits of, uh, uh, of T.E. Lawrence were the, the stuff of uh, exciting legend. You know, here was a a man of extraordinary qualities who was able to um, bring about um, a a, a guerrilla attack, guerrilla warfare on the Ottoman Empire. The extent of his, um, the the significance of his um, uh, struggles against the Ottoman Empire are, um, well, perhaps questionable, um, but we'll talk about that more in a moment. An interesting thing to note is in 1918, at the end of the war, Nobody had heard of him. That is, nobody in Great Britain anyway. He was a, an obscure army officer with nothing really to um, attract public attention. 
So in a way, the story of um, T.E. Lawrence is um, as interesting from a point of view of the development of modern media and modern notions of fame and celebrity as it is for his uh, tales of daring do in, in the desert. So he was born in 1888 and um, he was a figure that you see in a number of different guises throughout the on the periphery of the the English kind of upper middle to upper classes in the um the twentieth century someone who is halfway part, halfway establishment but also has um you know is has a sense of the outsider to them um he was born in traumatic in Wales his father was uh, an anglo irish uh, gentry, uh, an officer who um, had run off with another woman, run off with a, a governess who had been uh, employed to look after his first children, and they have uh, an illegitimate son in Traumatic in Wales, um, that, uh, and they renamed themselves the Lawrences. So um, Thomas Lawrence um, was a, a kind of... Uh, Quite an eccentric figure, a um, an Arabist, and he developed his love of um, uh, the uh, Arab culture at Oxford University. Um, he went with the British Museum to Syria in the three years from 1911 to 1914 and worked on excavation digs there, and there he became fluent in Arabic. Um, and he was he was sent to Cairo in 1914. Um, he was a, one of these um, academic um, uh, academic um, types that British intelligence say are very um, kind of ad hoc and often kind of say amateurish outfit at the time. Thought well, you seem like a clever chap and you can speak the language of the Arabs and we're probably going to be at war with the Ottomans. Fairly soon, off you go. Um, and in November 1914, that indeed happens, and the Ottoman Empire declares war on the Allied powers. Um, and the uh, plans that the intelligence units surrounding um, Lawrence had was to see if they could use the Arab tribes to rise up against the Ottomans. Now, this wasn't a new idea. Kitchener, in 1910, had wondered whether this would be possible, believing that the... Arabs were the Ottomans' kind of Achilles' heel, and the conversations that had been going on between the British um, and the Arabs had been conducted between um, the British and Sharif Hussein of Mecca. Sharif Hussein of Mecca would have been happy to overthrow the Ottomans, not so much out of nationalist principles. The Sharif was a a key part of the um, establishment of, of the empire. Um, he had grown up um, in the within close proximity to the Ottoman leadership and supported them for the most part. He was a religious conservative figure and was deeply opposed to the um, modernization and liberalization of the Ottoman Empire. He did not like the Tanzimat reforms and was opposed to the rule of the Pashas and believed that an independent Hejaz, which was uh, the uh, western seaboard of what is now Saudi Arabia, or even an independent Arab kingdom, 
might be able to preserve Islam in the in a more purified form. Now you see again and again throughout the First World War, great powers using national minorities to cause others um, an immense amount of trouble. The uh, Germans uh, attempt to fund the uh, Easter Rising and uh, arm it. Uh, the uh, Germans also send revolutionaries uh, back to Russia after February 1917. And so this was a, a kind of a, a well-understood ploy. Um, the extent to which the Middle East was seen as a backwater by um, the chiefs of the general staff uh, of the British Army um, can be shown really through uh, kind of Lawrence's um, Lawrence's efforts and the small underfunded team that he had. But the significance of the Middle East to the British, particularly their control of Egypt, um, was um, uh, never more important than it was by the, by the time of about 1916. The British had sent for, or the British government uh, uh, in 1914 had sent for Sir Mark Sykes, um, the only person that Lloyd George, Kitchener and the War Cabinet could lay their hands on in a short space of time, who seemed remarkably knowledgeable uh, about the, the Middle East. And he was uh, part of the process of crafting the Sykes-Pico Agreement, which was the initial um, sort of uh, understanding about the, the carve-up of the Ottoman Empire after the um, end of the, the, the First World War. So gradually, as the First World War goes on, um, strategically, the Ottoman Empire and the Middle Eastern theatre becomes more important, but it never, never becomes anything more than an afterthought in the eyes of the um, uh, of, of people like Haig. Um, people like Haig sneer at um, and uh, Robertson and uh, French. They they sneer at the um, politicians and diplomats and military um, thinkers who look to the Middle Eastern theatre um, and refer to them as the Easterners. And there, there's a kind of a sense that this was a sideshow of a sideshow and that the main fighting needed to be done on, on the Western Front. The um, disaster at Gallipoli in 1915 shows to, to the, uh, the Western Fronters that the Easterners are really barking up, up the wrong tree. But the thing to remember is that the Middle East was really the gateway um, between the uh, the East and the West uh, from Britain to her, her Asian empire. And any disruption to this uh, was potentially fatal. Um, if Britain was cut off from India um, or Australia, then all manner of catastrophes might ensue. So it really was a very important part of the world. And after the ascendancy in 1916 of David Lloyd George to um, the Prime Minister's uh, office, um, a new kind of crusade um, takes shape in that Lloyd George believed, partly on a kind of a, a Christian or religious level, but mainly on a, uh, an imperial um, level, on an empire-building level, that um, the British Empire should be should expand into um, the uh, the Ottoman Empire, that um, 
Palestine should be um, controlled by Great Britain and that um, certainly uh, Mesopotamia and specifically Mosul in the north where it was understood there to be oil that should be controlled by the the British um, as well and so um, Lloyd George in 1916 introduces an entirely new strategic dimension to the war um, and one of the war goals is finally expanding a an empire into the Middle East um, under the cover, I suppose, of mandates uh, at the end of the war. And this is indeed what happens. So the conflict in the Middle East goes, uh, threatens the British Empire. Um, the uh, Ottomans tried to seize the Suez Canal. And so in June 1916, Sharif Hussein of Mecca launches the Arab Revolt. Lawrence formed a strong friendship with Prince Faisal, uh, one of Sharif Hussein's sons, and um, Lawrence's great achievement, for which he is immortalised in the film Lawrence of Arabia, is the seizure of the port of Aqaba on the on the Red Sea in July. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 1917. The, uh, Sir Edmund Allenby commander-in-chief of the British-led um, Egyptian Expeditionary Force, saw something, saw potential in the Arab Revolt. Um, the Arab Revolt was, prior to this point, seen, again, as a sideshow of a sideshow, some, some real, real irrelevance. But Allenby believed that um, it could help him. And he was willing, at this point, uh, because uh, of the strategic value of the Arab Revolt, to arm and equip the Arabs with the um, supplies that they need to wage a full guerrilla war. And Aqaba is um, sort of almost Lawrence's publicity stunt. It's the thing that he does to show to the British, look, there is potential in these warriors. Part of their appeal, of course, the, the Bedouins, is that they were quite cheap, you know. Um, the thing as well about the Ottoman control of Arabia is that it couldn't be done without railways. You know, deserts are difficult things to cross and difficult things to police. 
Um, the Bedouin know how to do it. Um, they are um, they you know lived in the desert for centuries, and the Ottomans were bound were sort of st- stuck really. Um, and um, constrained by the use of railways, especially if you blow the railway lines up. Um, the Lawrence uh, spends the rest of the war um, conducting guerrilla raids, destroying railways and disrupting communications uh, between Turkish lines, and this coincides with Allenby's um, final assault on Damascus. The myth of Lawrence Arabia began um, by the works of an American journalist, Lowell Thomas. He'd met him in 1918. He'd filmed him um, as part of a an American propaganda drive. The um, American audiences uh, and the American uh, war propaganda uh, services needed to have a um, they needed to have a hero. And so they combed, really, the, um, the, the different theatres of war to find somebody quite remarkable. And Lowell Thomas, um, at the end of the war, really, um, gives talks about um, his um, journeys w- um, with the British Army in Palestine. And the, the lecture was called With Allenby in Palestine and Lawrence in, in Arabia. And all of a sudden, this extraordinary figure begins to emerge in, in uh, Lowell Thomas's writing. And he took his tour not only to America, but also to Britain. And it's really in about 1919 that the, the, the Lawrence myth begins. Um, the, there was a show on the Royal Albert Hall in August 1919, and it was sensational and um, this is exciting and the, uh, the, a film is made of Lawrence's life, a kind of a, an early black-and-white documentary that's seen, about, um, seen all the way around the world. About four million people watch it. Um, and it is uh, referred to, he's referred to initially as the Blonde Bedouin. Um, and it, it kind of fits in with a lot of, um, uh, of the, the, the black-and-white silent films that were happening at the time. There is something deeply unattractive, obviously, about the memories of the trenches, which were um, unpleasant things to to think about. Um, The Arab Revolt was an exciting venture, um, and it was a a raw of movement and ingenuity and daring and the kind of things that people think war should be. Uh, But also, kind of, Lawrence was, was, was quite an attractive man, um, he was a um, uh, part of a uh, you know the, the new culture of of the mi- of, of the movies really that was um, shaping itself in the early 1920s, and it's no coincidence that in 1921 the uh, silent movie star Rudolph Valentino has a massive hit with the film The Shake, um, which was a, a kind of a uh, laden with ideas of kind of Orientalism and exoticism, and uh, sensuality and, and and sexuality, and all these kinds of things. Um, Lawrence was um, had a, a a kind of a conflicted reaction to his fame. He was an extremely egotistical man, a terrible narcissist, um, and his, many of his kind of exploits during wartime 
suggest this. But he also was extremely shy, and he sort of he was, uh, you know, rejected his fame. He wanted to uh, find a quiet life now in the Royal Air Force, which he he joined and served in India. Um, and then um, he uh, adopted the pseudonym. He didn't want uh, to be recognised, but he also he was quite obsessed with his his own his own image. Um, the the press wanted to find out more about him, though he was quite a, an, extra, an intriguing figure. And in his in his newfound fame and status, he got to meet some quite influential figures and had some quite influential admirers. So not only was he did become friends with Winston Churchill, um, but um, people such as George Bernard Shaw, W. H. Auden, and Christopher Isherwood, and Thomas Hardy all became um, admirers of him, um, along with Kathleen Scott, who was the widow of uh, Robert Falcon Scott, Scott of the Antarctic, who no doubt, had he lived a couple of years longer, would have been uh, perhaps engaged in similar tales of daring do on the Western Front. Um, so he was able to kind of craft and control his, his public image, um, and he um, talked about, uh, he wrote his book in 1926, The Seven Pillars of Wisdom, um, which eventually becomes the abridged ver- book, um, The Revolt, Revolt in the Desert. And he's one of these figures, again, like Churchill, whose wartime exploits are carefully managed and controlled in order to present a particular version of events you know he knew that he would be chief in making his his own myth um and it was um lawrence you know he plays up his role in in the arab revolt um but it also offers all sorts of insights about his sexuality his attraction to men um his um the, the accounts of him being tortured after he was captured by the turks um, and again, this adds part partly it 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 adds to to the myth. Um, he suffered the 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 fate of all kind of legends. Really, he died early. Uh, he was killed in 1935 in a motorcycle accident, and so he's he's um, really uh, elevated to that kind of level of 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 the, the, the tragic hero that you know did good by his his nation. It's sort of somewhat not dissimilar to Nelson um in in that kind of level of, of, of adoration. And he is indeed immortalized at St. Paul's Cathedral where there's a, a bronze bust in his likeness. One of the impressions that you get about T.E. Lawrence from the writings of James Barr, um, and if you haven't read his book, Line in the Sand, it really is, really is a very good read indeed, um, is, that, is that from time to time you have this largely autonomous and um, egomaniacal and almost kind of out-of-control figure making up British policy in the Middle East as he goes along. He's determined to prevent the French from um, taking Damascus, for example. Um, He had a a deep loathing of the French. Um, He had a deep affection for the Arabs that he fought with and definitely believed that an Arab nation should emerge at the end of the war, as um, they had been suggested um, that might happen. The, the actual promises made by the British 
in the McMahon letters, the McMahon correspondence between um, Sir Thomas McMahon uh, in Egypt and uh, Sharif Hussein of Mecca, implied strongly that the British would support the emergence of a, a unified uh, Arab nation. And at the end of the war, obviously that's not what happens. Um, by the 1920s, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia has emerged, but Arabia does not include um, Syria, Iraq, or Mesopotamia at the time, Transjordan, or Palestine. These are hived off uh, under, uh, as, as mandates. Um, and so it means that um, the Arabia that was originally envisaged fails to emerge, even though Lawrence himself attends the Paris Peace Conference negotiations as part of Faisal's delegation uh, in 1919. And it's interesting that um, the end of the war seems to have been kind of the, 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 sort of the metaphorical death of Lawrence, really. He goes and does some work for Churchill at the colonial office and he uh, attempts to join the uh, tank corps and he joins the RAF and he then retires and uh, enjoys um, activities such as speedboat racing and motorcycle racing. But he seems to have kind of drifted from one thing to another and never really had a, a kind of a, uh, the kind of the core sense of self that he achieved whilst fighting in the uh, the Arab Revolt. And uh, I guess this is an experience that veterans occasionally or periodically have, where the most exciting moments of their lives, when they felt most uh, a kind of a, uh, a kind of coherent sense of, of being a person, uh, is is past them, and all sorts of uh, question marks about identity and about um, the the role he had in the world was were um, unresolved. And the the sense you have of Lawrence, really, when he dies, is, is something of, a, of an unfinished life. Um, so there you go. So there is an, there's an interesting interface, isn't there, uh, interaction between the, um, uh, the, the kind of the mechanical processes and sometimes often mundane ones of fighting war and the creation of myth, fantasy and legend um, surrounding individuals and surrounding particular particular events. Um, and often the, the myth-making does more to kind of shape popular culture and national identity uh, than the actual uh, events in themselves. So anyway, I hope you found that useful, and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods, for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.